1: As we now look at chapter 7, this indicates the last six months of the life of Jesus. And the first incident that is recorded here by the author, who is the Apostle John, is the Feast of Tabernacles.
0: Are you familiar with the Feast of Tabernacles? Perhaps you've heard of it, but you don't know the details and why it exists and how we can perhaps apply some of its meaning to our lives today. Pastor Layton is going to get into that as we uh, go to the book of John once again. That's the seventh chapter that he referenced, and he'll be there in just a moment. I'm Mike Trout, and this is a broadcast called Study Verse by Verse, a daily visit from Church of the Highlands in San Bruno. There on the web at Highlands.us. I encourage you to check out all the details about the church. That's Highlands.us. Here's Pastor Layton.
1: Now, the Feast of Tabernacles is described in Leviticus chapter 23. It was a feast of great joy that celebrated Israel's deliverance out of the land of Egypt. And because as they had traveled across the wilderness, they had lived with tents. Uh, It was called the Feast of Tents or the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. The People uh, would live in temporary uh, construction. Uh, There was the blowing of the trumpets. uh, There was the pouring out of water in the temple and a double portion on the last day, the eighth day, to remind them of God providing water for them as they traveled through the middle of that wilderness desert. And then also during the festival, there was parades of uh, torches that commemorated the pillar of fire that guided and protected the children of Israel by night as they wandered about in the wilderness. We uh, now understand that that pillar of of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night um, uh, was uh, pictures of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was the cloud that protected the people from the burning desert sun. Uh, by day, and it was the pillar of fire by night that uh, warmed them in the freezing cold desert nights and protected them from wild animals. Now all of the feasts of God in the Old Testament have been fulfilled except for the Feast of Tabernacles, and this is going to be fulfilled when Jesus Christ our Lord returns to earth. We're going to learn more about that in the minutes to come. Let's look at verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, after this uh, does not uh, provide a definite uh, note of time. It doesn't give us an indication of how much time elapsed. But we know that uh, the feast of uh, the Passover in the previous chapter... And the uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, in this chapter, uh, there's an interval of about six months between them. Now, this is insightful for us because the author, the Apostle John, um, doesn't record everything that took place. But rather, he selected events in order to achieve a twofold purpose. One, explaining the deity and messiahship, the Savior of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, of bringing people to a faith in Jesus as their own personal Savior and Lord. Now, fortunately, we're not limited to one gospel. We we were given other gospels. And in the other gospels, uh, we find uh, a description of what happened during those six months. During those six months, Jesus traveled the length and the breadth of Galilee, all the way from Tyre and Sidon in the northwest to the Decapolis in the southeast. And during that time, he performed miracles such as healing and casting out demons and feeding the 4,000. But most of his time was spent discipling the twelve. He taught them extensively, and it was in that time that he, for the first time, revealed his impending rejection, crucifixion, and resurrection. He also revealed his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration to Peter, James, and John. Now here, John only records a couple of days with the crowd, but the the fact that Jesus focused on discipling the twelve primarily in those six months is very, very uh, important to us. Now, every believer should be discipled by more than one mentor. And every believer should mentor more than one disciple. You notice, know that the statistics tell us, and I think it's something around 90%, 90% of believers never have the privilege and the pleasure of leading someone into faith with Jesus Christ, of presenting the gospel and hearing somebody say, I want that. Uh, all of us should, uh, should have a, a heart for sharing the gospel and, and, and watching for opportunities for people to take the opportunity to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. One of the reasons I say that we should be mentored by more than one mentor is because oftentimes when a person chooses just one mentor, they become a clone of that mentor. In fact, they, God doesn't make clones Um, Every snowflake is different. Every one of us is different. There's no way for a person to be a perfect clone of somebody else. What ends up happening is they become a caricature. You know those drawings that you see in the theme parts where certain parts are distorted and things? That's what happens when a person tries to be a clone of somebody. They don't become a clone. They become a caricature. Uh, God made us each... To be distinct, and we need to learn from multiple mentors and take the best that they have to offer as we grow. And then also, we need to invest in others, and it's as much for our good as it is for theirs, because they're going to ask us questions that we don't have the answers for. And we need to be honest and say, hey, you know, I don't have the answer for that. Let me find out. And so the people that we are mentoring will encourage us to learn more in our process of teaching them. We will also be taught. Discipleship is a priority for the church. The Lord gave us the Great Commission. And the Great Commission doesn't say go and get a crowd. It says go and make disciples disciples. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The best measure of a church is not the size of its congregation, but the depth of its discipleship. It's the discipleship that will carry from generation to generation. Now it says here that Jesus was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were constantly seeking to kill him. It's in a the, in the continuous tense. They kept on seeking. They were looking for opportunities. There was a, a feeling of hostility towards the Lord that had reached the point where the religious leaders wanted him dead. And therefore, he was unwilling to walk in Judea. You remember we talked about uh, the landscape of Palestine. There's Galilee in the north and then Samaria and then Judea in the south, where the religious leaders were and where Jerusalem was. And he wouldn't go to the south. He wouldn't go to to Judea. He stayed in in Galilee. And it wasn't because he wasn't willing to die, but it wasn't yet time for his death to occur. Verse 2, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. And if you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, is also called the In-Gathering. It's about eight days long. And it's during this feast that people build temporary shelters um, to commemorate their ancestors who lived in temporary shelters as they were dwelling in the wilderness. And if you were a city dweller, then you might build your shelter in the backyard or the front yard or on the roof. Now, these booths are not like the ones that their ancestors had in the wilderness because they have large screen televisions, air conditioning, and refrigerators. But the idea was to be reminded of what the ancestors had done and what God had done for the ancestors. It was a feast of thanksgiving for the blessings of God, where God guided and protected his people and manifested himself in the tabernacle. And it's probably that reason that John, the author here, includes this story, because Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. Neither in the tabernacle nor in the temple that later replaced it was God fully manifest. But in Jesus Christ, God was fully manifest. And in the kingdom that's to come, the Feast of Tabernacles will again be celebrated in honor of the Messiah dwelling with his people and the ingathering from the nations. Now since that feast was near um, and all Jewish males were required to attend, his brothers assumed that he would leave Galilee and he would go to Judea to celebrate it. Now the expression his brothers has been variously understood and interpreted. The most natural way to understand it is that these were children of Joseph and Mary. Now, the expression occurs several times in the other Gospels, and never with any qualifications that would suggest it means anything else. The Bible does not say that Joseph and Mary had no union. What it does say is that Joseph had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. Until she gave birth to a son. That's in Matthew chapter 1. In Luke chapter 2, it says that Jesus was Mary's firstborn. Well, the firstborn indicates that there was a secondborn, and so on and so forth. So the most natural interpretation is these were brothers in terms of being children of Joseph and Mary. Now, there have been people who have had a challenge with that. There was an idea that uh, Mary was perpetually a virgin. That was uh, created in about the second century. So they had to do something with this, this word, brothers. And so one suggestion was that it, that it referred to the descendants of Joseph from a previous marriage. But there's nothing in history and there's nothing in the scriptures that suggests that at all. And then another way that it's been interpreted is that it doesn't really mean brother, it means cousin. But the problem with that is the word cousin is used in the New Testament, and there is a specific word for cousin. It's used, for instance, in Colossians 4.10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. So if he's talking about cousins, why didn't he use the word cousin? Why did he use the word brother? Um, Jesus, The the, the reference here is to Jesus' brothers, or more precisely, half-brothers, descendants of Mary and Joseph. Matthew thirteen fifty four says, And coming to his hometown, he, that is Jesus, taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Joseph, his father, was a carpenter. Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? He also had sisters. Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household.
0: Can you imagine being there in the midst of the crowd as all of this was going on? Pastor Leighton has a wonderful way of bringing us into a situation, and he's going to come back to this spot on the next edition of Study Verse by Verse as we continue through the book of John. We're in the seventh chapter. If you'd like to read ahead you'll have uh, that foundational knowledge as we continue on the next edition of this broadcast. This is an outreach of Church of the Highlands in San Bruno, and the congregation underwrites much of the expense of the broadcast, but we depend upon your involvement as well. If you'd like to join with us financially, you can give safely at studyversebyverse.com. That's studyversebyverse.com. Have a great rest of your day. Join us tomorrow at this same time when Pastor Layton will once again help us study verse by verse.